listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, once again, we just praise your name. At this time, we just give thanks to you, Father, for your grace and your mercy and your abundance in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ. For, Father, we know that in your kingdom there are no coincidences or accidents. We are all together right now by your divine appointment. Father, we just pray that you open our hearts and minds and our lives to your word. We pray, Father, that you would just minister to us. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The, uh, <laughs> I believe we finished chapter 7 last time. We're in chapter 8 of Second Samuel. And rolling right along. It's, uh, these these uh, historical narratives are... Uh, you can go one, at, one of two ways. Uh, you can go the way we're going, which is just to keep moving to get the flavor of what's really happening. Uh, there are thousands of little byroads that I'm avoiding, like the chronology of the kings and certain textual problems, partly because they're, they tend to impede our progress and they, they don't contribute anything to our understanding, and uh, uh, they'll just bog us down. So we're sort of going at a little different pace as, than we normally do. But I think that'll be constructive for this kind of material, because first of all, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's the kind of material you can, that generally pretty much speaks for itself, and, and uh, you know, uh, library research doesn't really add that much. But anyway, uh, chapter 8. The conquests of David's kingdom. We had the Davidic covenant last time in chapter 7. Chapter 8 is going to deal in summary fashion with the expansion by David of his empire, north, south, east, and west. Some of it will be summary here and then amplified a couple of chapters later. The Ammonites are going to be dealt with in detail later. Don't be confused. It really occurs here. It's just summarized here and then detailed later for a number of reasons. So, um, the key verse will be uh, verse 6, but we'll get to that. Let's start with chapter 8, verse 1. And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took uh, Methegama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with a the line, casting them down to the ground. Even with uh, two lines measured, he put to death and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. <laughs> well, first of all, the Philistines. They're to the west. The chief city is Gath. And by the way, the parallel passage here is First Chronicles 18. So uh, we won't keep bouncing back and forth, but we'll discover that First Chronicles will, will parallel this account and give us uh, some insights as we go here. Now, uh, the Moabite thing here is a, is a change uh, from 1 Samuel 22. Here they're the enemies. He smote Moab. Now, verse 2 raises some problems. He measured them with a line, casting them uh, down to the ground. Even with two lines measured, he uh, to put to death with one full line to keep alive. Um, this has to do with the Hebrew text having to do with one cord. And um, some experts believe that what he did is he spared the young that were not as high as one cord and killed the others. Other commentators, and that's the other translations, and it's probably the way it is in your Bible, implies that he formed three lines and knocked off two of them and kept one third. Uh, so in other words, one of every three rows of soldiers was spared. Heavy stuff. 
In any case, though, he apparently puts them to death, and at the same time, the ones that survived, whatever view you take of the textual technicalities, uh, they became David's servants, and they brought gifts. So David didn't mess around. David was a warrior. Interesting guy. Poet, minister of music, but also a first-rate military leader that didn't, uh, didn't uh, pull his punches. Tough guy. Verse 3. David smote also Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Now, by the way, Hadadezer was the king of Zobah. It's misleading in the English. Uh, the son of Rehob uh, is a, just like his last name, if you will. Don't imply that he was the son of the king, in other words. It's a little misleading the way it shows up in the English. Hadadezer was the king of Zobah, and uh, he was the son of Rehob. That was just like, a, like a last name. Um, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. Now, Zobah, by the way, uh, we're going to read about a little bit more. Uh, he was an Aramean king uh, north of Damascus. Now, sometimes you'll hear some modern translations will speak of the Arameans as Syria, except they didn't exist as a legal entity until the Hellenistic period, about 300 B.C., in other words, about roughly 600 years later. So speaking of the Assyrians is, a, is an anachronism. They're really the predecessors of the Assyrians, the Arameans. And we're going to be talking a lot about them here shortly. Um, but their headquarters is in Damascus, so that, that's why, if you, you know, from our point of view, we think Syria, but that's actually anachronistic. That's 600 years later. Um, verse 4, And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but reserved of them for a hundred chariots. Now here again, the 1700, the Septuagint version and also 1 Chronicles 18, verse 4, implies that there are actually a thousand chariots and seven thousand horsemen. And this gets all tangled up in the subtleties of the text and, which, and, and, and the possibility of copyist errors. Again, it's not a profound issue, and, and at this point as a student of Scripture, just be aware that here and there in the, in the book of Kings, and First Samuel, Samuel, First Samuel Kings, there are some textual problem, uh, problems. They're not profound ones. And uh, pretty much we've got ways to, to uh, sift through it to get a perspective. But what the exact numbers are seems to be uh, an issue of some copyist errors. In any case, it's a formidable force, and um, um, we, I, we'll keep moving. Verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to aid Hadadezer, um, again, here we've got the modern translation, but in any case, uh, uh, had it easier, the king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians two and twenty thousand men. It's a lot of men. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And I would suggest verse 6 is the key issue. David is experiencing and will experience a lot of success here. And the reason is because of verse 6. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. Verse 7. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer the king, David took it very, very, very much bronze. Uh, Beta is the Aramean city uh, called Tibeth in First. Chronicles 18.8, slightly different translation, but as Tibbeth is the same place. 
and Hamath is the Aramean state, 100 miles north of Damascus at this time. Verse 9, And when Toi, the king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Edezer, then Toi sent Joram his son unto King David to greet him, to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him, for Hadadezer had wars with Toi. And Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of bronze, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations, which he subdued, of Syria, of Moab, of the children of Ammon, and of the Philistines, and of Amalek, and of the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Okay, now... Toy, the king of Hamath, was obviously glad to see Zobah uh, crushed because it was his traditional enemy. So he immediately makes friends. Nothing unites two people like having a common enemy. <laughs> and so, uh, so uh, he brings gifts and he puts himself in voluntary submission to his powerful neighbor, Israel. So David's empire is growing. And we've talked uh, about uh, north and west. We're now going to look south. Okay, um, verse 13, And David got, a got him a name when he returned from the smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And uh, verse 14, And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons. And all they of Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. There again, that same, that, uh, that same endorsement, that same, that same phrase. Edomites, descendants of Esau, um, from Psalm 60, verse 1, 1 Chronicles 18, 12, uh, we find that the, you know, we, we uh, get this all, they're cross-references, if you will. Okay. Verse 15, And David reigned over all Israel. And David executed justice and righteousness unto all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. And Sarai was the scribe. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Terathites and the Pelathites and David's sons were chief rulers. So there we are. Um, Davidic covenant confirmed in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 a summary of these, this broad conquest. Some of these same conquests will be repeated in more detail in subsequent chapters. But um, now the result of all of this is that David's empire uh, extends from the Gulf of Aqaba and the river of Egypt it's called, the Wadi Al-Arish, uh, to the Euphrates, to the Euphrates. And this is what God promised Abraham in, chap in Genesis 15, 18. But don't confuse this with the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, first three verses. Because while David's empire extended over this range, he didn't possess it or own it. They were simply vassal kings, giving him tribute. There's a difference. And um, the uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3 uh, indicates that David would possess the land as a permanent possession, Genesis 13, 15. 
Very important issues. Because on the one hand, yes, the empire extended over this area. On the other hand, he didn't have it as a possession. They were simply vassal kings giving him tribute because of his strength. Not quite the same thing. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you that the destiny, the fulfillment, if you will, of uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 12, 1, 2, and 3, and uh, 13, uh, 15, have yet to be fulfilled. And uh, we view that uh, that uh, boundary that's, in, that's expressed in Genesis 12 and 13 as messianic. Messianic. And obviously there's lots of debates about these things, but actually the scripture is really quite clear. It's really quite clear. Okay. We could talk about some of these wars, but I think we'll see more of that shortly, so let's just keep moving. Chapter 9, verse 1. Remember uh, Mephibosheth, the uh, crippled son that David promised to uh, treat kindly. That's what he fulfills here in chapter 9. And this is all derivative of his loyalty to Jonathan, the son of Saul. So chapter 9, verse 1, David said, Is there yet any who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's asking his staff people to do a study, a survey, find out. Who is left of the house of Saul? Because he loved Saul so much? No, because he loved Jonathan so much. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son who is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto, him, king, unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Emil uh, in Lodibar. Lodibar is in Gilead, about 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. I know you were wondering where that was, so I looked it up for you. Okay, a couple of things that I might point out is that the word kindness that shows up here in verse 1 and verse 3, is uh, it actually means, it's a word in the Hebrew meaning loyal love. Loyal love is a closer rendering than just the word. The word kindness to us is sort of a casual word. But it's a deeper word in the Hebrew, and, and just for what it's worth, uh, I'm sure that's not surprising to you. Um, verse 5, The king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Mekir, the son of a meal from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did obeisance. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? See, Mephibosheth realized he merited none of this. This is an example of sheer grace. Sheer grace. 
And I suppose you could think of a parallel of a father offering you that grace because of his love for his son. See, if we have standing before the throne of grace, it's derivative of the, of, of the merit of Jesus Christ, not ours. So perhaps, I'm, I'm not going to suggest it's a type of that, don't misunderstand, but the, the same conceptual structure. It's interesting to me to notice how throughout the Bible, God seems to attach so, such importance to genealogies. And I don't mean just in the Jewish genealogy because that had to do with the land and the inheritance to the land. There's a whole thing there, of course. But in the Ten Commandments, visiting iniquity upon the children of the fathers, of the fathers, not the mothers, the fathers. And you can get into a whole virgin birth thing on that if you want to work that one through. This whole emphasis on genealogies, or I should say parentage or lineage, is interesting because we'll notice it all through the Bible that, uh, that uh, we tend in our culture to treat our children as independent, especially in our transient society. We've lost, in many places, the concept of family, the closeness, the proximity. We don't attach, I think, the significance to lineage as the old world did. And I don't mean just from Israel, but even in Europe and so on, the cultural, the cultural traditions here, attaching great importance to parentage and ancestors. And obviously that can be carried too far. But on the other hand, it's interesting to me to see that here, all through the Bible, if you watch it, you'll be sensitive to it, you'll notice that there is great importance attached, great deference shown, and vice versa. There are great uh, consequences to the third and fourth generation of the actions of the parents. We don't think of that particularly. I mean, if the parents, you know, their actions, we, we, in, our, in our jurisprudence and in our, in our concept of, uh, of equity, uh, we sort of uh, regard the kids as, as uh, on their own, and they, they sink or swim as to what they do. We don't, we don't have the concept of an implied uh, inheritance, if you will, from the parents in that sense. But it's interesting that we see that uh, uh, implicit all through the Scripture. And it's interesting here. David loved Jonathan. What's that got, got to do with Mephibosheth? Nothing really, but it's David's way of honoring uh, his relationship with Jonathan. It's beautiful. Um, now there's probably two aspects to this. One, of course, is the obvious one. He made a covenant with Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20 and in 23, confirmed. 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, and then it's confirmed in, in 23, 18. The covenant that David did with Jonathan. It's... Uh, Fresh enough in our minds, we don't have to go back and refresh. But there's a second issue that was probably in David's mind. I'm speculating, but I throw it out for your own consideration. David was probably very anxious to end any potential conflict with the house of Saul. Be very understandable. He's in power now. There's no contest. He's not losing anything by doing this. In fact, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a move toward peace to extend what courtesies he can to the remnants of the house of Saul. On the one hand. On the other hand, it's also interesting that he severs the potential of having heir with uh, having an heir with Michael, Saul's daughter, even though he's married to her. Because that would just go the other way, create other problems. So it would seem that David is being uh, extremely perceptive and, uh, and, of course, gracious in this whole uh, situation. We picked it about verse 10. Now, there, uh, uh, thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him. 
and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. It's interesting that um, Mephibosheth himself will eat at David's table. He has that right. It's granted to him. It's a position. It's an honor. It's a, it's a mandate he has. But even beyond that, uh, all this provision is going to be for Mephibosheth and his household. So his whole household is provided for. Verse 11, Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat regularly at the king's table. And he was lame on both his feet. On both his feet. Okay. Now we're going to have in chapter 10 some detail of this campaign against the Ammonites. And uh, it's a little confusing because back there, a couple of chapters before, we thought they were all done with. That was a summary. Now we're getting detail, if you will. Don't assume that these are necessarily in tight chronological or contiguous uh, shape, if you will. So this, in, a, in effect, chapter 10 is a expansion of verse 12 of chapter 8, in a sense. Okay. Um, pretty straightforward. Uh, let's just uh, jump in. Chapter 10, verse 1. It came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. David sent to console him by the hand of his servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. Okay. So he's intending to console Hanan, the son of Nahash. And... Um, uh, uh, Nahash had hostility toward Saul, 1 Samuel 11, first 11 verses, if you want to refresh yourself later. So therefore, since he was an enemy of Saul, he tended to be a supporter of David. So David's attempting to show kindness to his son since his father died. It doesn't quite work that way, it turns out. <laughs> Verse 3. The princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father? that he hath sent thee comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So um, the son, the successor, his advisors are, make, are creating a paranoia here that uh, is unfortunate. Verse 4, Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. In other words, by trimming the, 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 uh, their clothes, they returned, naked, you know, uh, exposed, embarrassed. Also, even today in the Arab world, the shaving of the beard is considered a great indignity. A great indignity. All you guys with beards can sort of stand a little taller tonight because that's a, obviously shaving a beard off is an indignity. So you'll just have to be patient with the rest of us. Uh, but... Uh, 
So uh, in any case, uh, this was intended, it was in fact intended to be a put down, a disgrace towards David's servants and thus to David, of course. So verse 5, when they told it to David, he, went, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed and the king said, tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown and then return. Taking for granted, they also probably would get some additional garments while they're at it. <laughs> verse 6, and when the children of Ammon saw that they had become odious before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians, Bethrehob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and uh, of King uh, Meaka, uh, 1,000 men, and of Tob, 12,000 men. So see, now that they're in trouble, they're getting mercenaries. They're going to hire 33,000 mercenaries to try to cover themselves from the north. And they're underestimating two things. David's quite a military leader, and the Lord is with them. So they're in deep trouble. But they brought on themselves, because David's overture was friendly. And they chose to antagonize him. That was a big mistake. Verse 7. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. One simple sentence, terrifying. David had quite an army by now. And Joab was a seasoned, experienced military leader. Verse 8. And the children of Ammon came out and put the battle in array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and of Tob and Mechah were by themselves in the field. And Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind. He chose of all the choice men of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them in array against the children of Ammon. And he said, If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will come and help thee. In other words, he divides his forces, and in this case very cleverly. It also implies that they were very skilled at communication. If you have any battlefield experience, you realize that communication is crucial, and this implies that they are very, very confident of their ability to assess the progress and to communicate with, with both flanks. So, Pretty, there's a lot of military insight here. And, of course, it leads to a great victory because they outmaneuver the Ammonite Aramean uh, uh, coalition, or Syrian, if you will, coalition, and so they get a great victory. Verse 12, Be of good, uh, good courage, and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God, and the Lord do that which seemeth to him good. And Joab drew near, and the people who were with him, unto the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. When the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, they then fled also before Abishai and entered, uh, and entered into the city. So Joab returned from the children of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they were smitten before Israel, they gathered themselves together. And, and uh, Hadrad-Ezer uh, sent and brought out the Syrians who were uh, beyond the river. And they came to Hilam and Shobak and the captain of the host of Hadrad-Ezer, uh, uh, went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together, passed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in array against David and fought, uh, fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David slew the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians and 40,000 horsemen, and smote uh, Shobach and the captain of their host, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadrezer saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore. <laughs> kind of understandable. Um, so Adrezer uh, enlists the supports, in this case of the Syrians, that are beyond the river, meaning the river Euphrates, in this case. 
beyond the river Euphrates. And uh, they engage at Helam, which is northeast of Ramath Gilead. And uh, again, Israel wins. And of course, the Arameans uh, from this point on are subject to Israel, and they obviously aren't going to be too uh, open, uh, show much interest to helping the Ammonites anymore. And uh, now these 700 charioteers, according to First Chronicles 19, are actually 7,000. Again, we've got a numbering, you know, a copyist uh, uh, error problem in Second Samuel. Uh, Second Chronicles implies there weren't 700 chariots; there were 7,000. And with 40,000, in any case, with 40,000 horsemen, there, there's quite a. It doesn't say footmen, by the way. Those are horsemen. That's a, quite an army. And so, uh, that's the uh, things are going pretty well. Let's summarize David to this point. He's doing a pretty good job. He expressed his covenant loyalty to God in chapter six and seven, to his fellow man in chapter nine, and even to the foreigners in chapter ten. And up till now, God is blessing his rule. And obviously, anyone with a little sense can tell that things are going too good. We've got to come to a problem, right? And uh, David obliges us and really blows it in chapter 11. And um, from chapter 11 through chapter 20, see, up till now, the first 10 chapters were David's triumphs. We've had a summary of his triumphs, spiritual triumphs and his, uh, his military triumphs, political triumphs. We're now going to enter a 10-chapter uh, section, 11 through 20, of his troubles. And he brings it on himself. He's going to have troubles uh, with morals, with politics, and with his family relationships. And they all derive out of chapter 11 and 12. It's interesting that... Uh, Things are going too well. And that, that seems to be when guys get messed up. When they're in the deep valley, they make mistakes. Or when they're at the top of the heap. You go through life and you watch uh, senior executives mess their lives up. The time that seems to be toughest for people to take is we're on the top of the heap. And it's a strange phenomenon. It's a strange phenomenon. But... Uh, it's, a, it's interesting, too. It's a premise that I leave with you to mull over and think about, is that we don't stumble in our weak suit. We stumble in our long suit. Whatever you're really good at, whatever re you're really best at, watch out. My example, Peter. Ready, fire, aim, Peter. Foot and mouth, Peter. He'd draw his sword and slice off an ear before he knew what the game was. Right? It, whatever Peter may lack judgment, but he certainly had courage. Right? If you get, his long suit was what intellect? Don't think so. Judgment, deliberation, wise counsel? Don't think so. What was Peter's long suit? Boldness, courage. How did he stumble? Lack of courage. How interesting it is that Peter's grand, that the, the, the sin that we will always remember him by, denying the Lord three times, is he's the last guy in the world you'd expect that to happen to, right? Look at David. A moralist. He wrote a bunch of the Psalms. If you're familiar with the Psalms, you have an insight into his character. Here's a guy that... Uh, had incredible resources of soul and of spirit. Fled Saul, 
all those years, never allowing himself to get bitter or angry at Saul, really? Has several opportunities to kill him and doesn't. You look at that guy. Here's a guy with real moral fiber. Good guy. Fantastic guy. And we get to chapter 11. Boy, that should give us pause. There's a great encouragement in this, too. There's an incredible encouragement. This may sound like a very strange thing to say, and I'm sure I can be very easily misquoted out of context. But what encouragement we should get from David. Because David's going to really blow it. And yet he is not only forgiven and blessed, he is one that God speaks of as after his own heart. What can that possibly mean? Here's a guy who's going to lust and sin and murder to cover his sin. And he's a man after God's own heart. That's your field problem for the evening, is to really come to grips with that. Let's jump into chapter 11, verse 1. came to pass, after the year was ended, at the time when kings go forth to battle, notice the writer's doing a little editorializing here. See, in other words, it's the spring. In the springtime, there were two things. There was good weather, and there was also food in the fields on the way. So that was the season that most kings went to battle. They spent the winter planning it, and then the spring they hit the, went to, into the field to engage the enemy because it was fresh and new and there was food, and it was the time that kings go to battle. And his soldiers will be at battle. Where should he have been in battle? Where is he at home? In headquarters, in the comforts of home, with time on his hands. <laughs> at the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. It came to pass at eventide. But David arose from his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, this daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. Brief description of the event. Doesn't pull its punches, but lays it right out. Was she guilty? A lot of arguments about that. Certainly David was. From his house he could look upon, apparently because he's up on Zion, he could look down and see her place. One can't help but assume that she's being immodest because she's not dumb. She knows whose houses overlook hers. And for her to bathe herself that way, at least in the minds of many commentators, believe that she certainly was not guiltless here. She was in the sense she was subject to the king. So when the king sends for her and so forth, she's got, uh, uh, you know, he, 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 it doesn't detract from what he's responsible for. But it's interesting that uh, this, uh, this coin may have two sides. I just thought I'd lay that out, girls, for you to, to uh, think about. It's interesting that Bathsheba, with whatever her virtues or sins were, makes it to 
the genealogy of Jesus Christ. None other than Levi, Matthew, a Levi, Matthew, who records the genealogy of Jesus Christ in classical Judaistic terms from Abraham down through Joseph, includes four women in the genealogies. The Hebrews never included women in genealogies. And uh, the, uh, there are four women. And three of the four have doubtful backgrounds. Ruth is the one exception. But uh, Tamar Bathsheba and uh, Rahab are all of a cloudy background. So I don't know what you women's livers are going to make of that one. We'll just keep moving. Uh, Uriah the Hittite. He wasn't Jewish. But his name means, make sure I get this right, Yahweh is my height. Excuse me, my light. I can't read my own writing. My light. Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you want to look at it, is my light. What that implies is, is that even though he wasn't Jewish, he was a Hittite, it implies he was a proselyte. He apparently is devout. He certainly proves to be very loyal to his concept of his profession. Because when he comes to Jerusalem, he does not take the opportunity to go home. He feels that's, that would be being disloyal to his troops. Because they didn't enjoy that, so he forces himself to stay at the barracks in Jerusalem and not go home. That either <laughs> implies he's very loyal to his troops or he's got a problem at home. But anyway, um, in any case, from the spirit of the narrative, I suspect that it was one of a, a perceived uh, duty to his, his troops. Okay, so uh, she returns to her home, but then uh, verse 5, the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And boy, that gives David a problem. His sin will become exposed. It will become visible. So what does he try to do? He tries to cover it up. David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. In other words, he, he, he sends to his battlefield commander to send Uriah home. said to David. Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto David, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. In other words, he creates the impression that he's asking for a field report, how things are going. And um, David said to Uriah, Now go down to thy house and wash thy feet. That's a euphemism for spend some time at home. You and I take it literally, but uh, commentators believe that was just, that was a figure of speech at the time, a euphemism for, you know, to get some R&R, &R, take some time at home. And um, Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him uh, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And the presumption we make is that that was because he felt that his troops, he didn't want to f have a benefit over his co-workers at, in the field, that he was there on duty, so he felt that would be a, a breach of that uh, uh, that you know, situation. So uh, he stays uh, he stays uh, in his house. And so when they uh, told David, David sent uh, Uriah went not down to his house. David said to Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go in to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Interesting guy. David said to Uriah, 
Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. And so Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day, and the next. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Now David even tries to get this guy drunk to go home. But he won't do it. It came to pass, verse 14, in the morning, that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. First gives you some insight into the loyalty and confidence that David puts into Joab, because he's being a conspiracy to murder here. The idea is to take Joab, put him out in the hottest battle, and then pull the support from his flanks and let him let the enemy kill him. Murder. And uh, it's just that simple. Verse 16, it came to pass when Joab observed the city um, that he assigned Joab into a place where he knew that valiant men were. I'm sorry, what did I say? Uriah, I'm sorry. Um, what did I say? Did I say Uriah? Huh? Joab, oh, I'm sorry. And we assigned Uriah into a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. And Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast finished telling the matters of war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he uh, then should say unto thee, Why approached ye so near unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? And who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerobesh? Uh, did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall, that he died in uh, Thebes? Why went ye near the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. <laughs> in other words, what I believe Joab is telling him is that when you start getting the report and David's upset with the bad news you're bringing, just mention that Uriah died also. <laughs> it's ironic. Who carried the message to Joab to pull us all off? Uriah did. A little irony there. In any case, verse 22, So the messenger went and came and made known to David all that Joab had sent him for. And when the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out uh, unto us into the field, that we were upon them, even unto the entrance of the gate, that the shooter shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Boy, one thing the Bible teaches is that God does not wink at sin. God does not wink at sin. So we have both an adultery and a murder plot here in front of us. And chapter 12 deals with the sin being revealed and being judged and is the background for Psalm 51. 
the famous Psalm 51 emerges out of this situation. Nathan, the prophet, is going to have a tough problem. Nathan is going to be called upon to confront the king. Visualize yourself for a moment before we get into this. Suppose you're Nathan. You're going to tell the boss that, by the way, you're an adulterer and a murderer. Interesting predicament that Nathan is put into. See, Nathan's previous dialogue with the king was chapter 7, the blessing. The Lord's going to build you a house and make you a dynasty and make you a nation forever and all that, right? So the last time Nathan was with it before the king was a real upbeat time. This time Nathan's got a whale of a problem, and, he, and it's resolved in a very creative way. Chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent, to Nathan, uh, sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. What Nathan's going to do is tell him a parable and let the king prescribe the judgment for the people in the parable. Now, I don't know who gets the credit for the creativity here, whether that's literally what the Lord told him to do, or, or whether this was Nathan's way of accomplishing the task the Lord gave him. But in any case, by the Holy Spirit, we have a parable put before the king. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich men had very many flocks and herds, but the poor men had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own food and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was unto him as a daughter. Boy, Nathan's really setting this up, isn't he? Right, you know. Verse 4. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he was not willing to take of his own flock and of his own herd to prepare it for the wayfaring man who was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who was come to him. In other words, here's the rich man who's got lots of provision, and he's got a traveler to show hospitality to. He takes this pet from the household of the poor man. This is sort of, do you, you sense that this is being positioned sort of black and white? Huh? And it works. What's David's reaction to this? Verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. See, this was well, well handled by Nathan to really get David upset. It, it riled his sense of justice or injustice. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man who hath done this thing shall surely die. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, David. And he goes on, verse 6, And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7 is a verse that pierces David's heart. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. 
And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Why hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? To do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. David getting it right between the eyes, isn't he? Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. It's interesting that um, out of this, of course, David will repent and his sin will be forgiven. The consequences of his sin remain. His sin is forgiven, but the results of the sin remain. And uh, there's many examples, but I think it pretty well stands on its own here. So David's wives would be taken by another, and he would lose his throne to usurper. We're going to find that in uh, 1 Kings 2 and so forth. The violation of Tamar will occur in chapter 13. The violent deaths of both Ammon and Absalom will occur in chapter 13 and chapter 18. And Absalom, during his rebellion, will publicly appropriate the royal concubines before all the side of Israel, to shame his father, in chapter 16. So these very prophecies that God lays upon on, on David in his house will be fulfilled. David will encounter all kinds of problems with his sons, with his wives. He's got moral problems. He's got political problems. Uh, he'll have family problems. All derive from this event. Tragic. We've got ten chapters of headaches forthcoming. All deriving from his sin and uh, the judgment of that sin. So it's a straight, on the one hand, you say, wow, David, you really blew it. Hmm? But what an encouragement to us. Let's see what, how David handles it. I hope you and I don't blow it like David did. Yes. I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but you and I are going to have in the past and will again blow it. Maybe not as dramatically as David, but we'll blow it. Why? Because of Romans 7, whole study, we are what we are. We are subject to imperfections that will deny us the destiny that God would have for us but for Jesus Christ. But God has made that provision. The real issue is, what do you do when you blow it? Tomorrow, a week from Tuesday, in January 7th or sometime, 
you're going to screw up spiritually, morally, some way. Hopefully not as dramatic as David, but, but uh, sin is sin, right? And what do you do about it? We'll see what David does about it in a minute. Let me remind you of something. There are two problems with sin. One problem is to ignore it or not be aware of it or to dismiss it. That's usually the problem of the unbeliever. Part of your coming to the, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is to become aware of your sin and acknowledge it to him so he can take care of it because he has. That's step one, not ignoring it. Let me tell you the other problem with sin, and that's to overreact to it. You're a Christian. You've come to the cross. You've really gotten the word. You've learned a lot. You've grown. And then you really fall on your face morally. What you will tend to believe is that you're irreplaceable. You're, 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 it's not repairable. Because what you, when that happens, I want to remind you of a question that you ask yourself at that time when you've stumbled so badly, I want you to ask yourself the question, how many of your sins were yet future when Christ died on the cross? All of them. All of them. Now, what you and I tend to do, and it's implicit, not explicit. I mean, sort of, we take it for granted. We sort of assume that Christ died for all our sins up until the time that we make that commitment at the foot of the cross to Jesus Christ. From that point on, we better get our act together. <laughs> then we fall on our nose. We sort of assume that Christ died for our sins up until now, but from here on, it's our problem. We don't say it that way, but that's sort of the mindset we have. I'm going to suggest to you when that happens, to remind, ask yourself the question, how many of your sins were yet future when Christ died on the cross? And the answer is all of them. Jesus Christ died for your sins from the time you were born till today. But what's even more exciting is he died for your sins that you're going to do week after next. When you really screw up going forward, those are not out of the reach of the atonement of the cross of Christ. Don't assume that that's a license to be abused. And I commend to you, if you haven't done it recently, review for yourself the first eight chapters of Romans. Don't stop at chapter 7. You're likely to get depressed. Make sure, make sure you get through the end of chapter 8. And if you're like me and a great believer in shortcuts, at least read the last half of chapter 8. My Bible is well worn because I check about once a day to make sure that's Romans 8, uh, 27 is still there. So on the one hand, we need as Christians to really develop God's attitude towards sin. It's uncompromising. He does not wink at sin. He judges sin. And we need to, in our Christian maturity, grow in that way, to really understand that God hates sin. What's the source of all sin? 
Pride. Exactly right. And why does God hate pride? Because that was through pride that Satan fell and introduced sin in the first place. So on the one hand, we need to understand God's attitude towards sin. We need to really appreciate that the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is God's program to be able to bless you in spite of sin. But he can't do it by winking at sin. That would violate his nature. Sin has to be judged. And he chose to arrange things so that he could judge his own son in lieu of you. But in order for that benefit to accrue to you, you have to accept it. But don't overreact either. Jesus Christ has paid for your sins. There are people in the scripture and around today who are saved, who have sinned worse than you could conceive of sinning. And that may sound like a strange kind of comfort, but when I I see David, I take great comfort. Because here is one that was not only saved, he's the one person in the Bible that God says, there's a man after my own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. After God's own heart. And we see that, not because he was sinless, he's obviously not sinless, he's a human being. He's a man. There's only one man that was free of sin. Jesus Christ. We find out that how his heart was by seeing how he dealt with the sin. He didn't rationalize it, didn't excuse it, went right into it. Let's pick it up at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, period. No footnotes, no parentheses, no evidence in mitigation. No. I have sinned against the Lord, period. He acknowledges it right up front. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. See, David's in our place. You and I should die for our sins. Jesus Christ died in our place. But Nathan goes on, How be it? Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Well, there's an interesting expression. See, David's sin has many ramifications. His sin was not private. It was public. And it gave occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Think about that. Think about the bakers. Think about the TV evangelists. Boy, they're human under a lot of pressure, and they blew it fine. What tragedy, though, in the second order effects of that, second and third order effects, with the press and the world, how they can thumb their noses against our Lord. Is their conduct any different than yours or mine? Not really. They get caught up in a world and made some poor decisions. There are a lot of public figures that for one reason or another stumble. And we know all the facts. You can don't condone it, but you understand it. Because they put on their pants one leg at a time. They're not superhuman. They're like you and I. No better, no worse. But the tragedy is, when they're that public, is that they give occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. So the first step is that the the, the child that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed into his house. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore unto David, 
and it was very sick. It's interesting that it's always Uriah's wife. The name Bathsheba doesn't show up. I think that's a kindness. See, I have a tendency to be... Uh, I, don't, I can't condone Bathsheba. I don't know what her real complicity here was. But it's interesting that her name is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. God chooses to honor her. Within Jewish sense, the highest honor that a, a Jewish mother could have is to be in the genealogy of the Messiah. It's interesting here in all the dialogue in chapter 12, it's never Bathsheba, it's Uriah's wife. Or maybe, so there may be an exception, but as I recall, it's pretty much the way it's referred to. Anyway, the child is uh, struck, and Uriah's wife born to David was very sick, and David therefore besought God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him and to raise, up, raise him up from the earth. But he would not, neither did he eat with them. No, he's in mourning. David has an interesting attitude here. God has said the child will die. David doesn't accept that. He always holds out the possibility that God may change his mind. So he fasts and he prays and so forth. He lays all night upon the earth. They wanted to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat with them. Verse 18, it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of the David feared to tell him that the child was dead. <laughs> you can understand why, can't you? If he's moaning while he's ill, what's he going to do when he finds out the child's dead, right? You tell him, I'll wait outside. For behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, <laughs> David perceived the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his apparel, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And he came unto his own house, and when he required, they set food before them, before him, and he did eat. Then the servant said unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was yet alive, but when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat. And he said, While a child was yet alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious unto me that the child may live? I wish I could do that phrase with a Jewish accent. It sounds so Jewish, right? Who can tell whether God will... Verse 23. But now he is dead, and why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, many commentators believe on the strength of verse 23 that this is an authority that children before the age of accountability if they die, are saved. Because David says, I shall go to him. Is David saved? You betcha. If David's saved, and the child is unsaved, they won't be together in death. Hmm? Luke 16 is your authority for a, at least one praise of that whole, whole situation. Now, there are other commentators that argue that that's taking out of context. He just really means that he, the child is dead and I will, I will also die someday. That's, and they tried. And 
I admit if this was the only verse, we're on thin ice. However, in Romans chapter 7, and I forgot to make the reference. Let's hope I can wing this here. Let's see. Oh, boy. I'm going to... I should have done my homework. And I'm not sure where I am going here. Doggone it. Let's see if that's what I want. Yes, thank you very much. Yes. Chapter 7. Let's pick up verse 8 to get a little bit of context here. But uh, Paul talking about... Uh, Romans 7 is often called law school. It's he's dealing with the law and sin. But verse 8, sin by taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. But then Paul says a strange thing in verse 9. For I was alive apart from the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's a strange verse. What it implies is that Paul, bear in mind, Paul was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee. He really understood the law. He says, I was alive apart from the law. How can that be? He was innocent. How can he be? Because he was before the age of accountability. And what it's generally when when the commandment came, that is when he became accountable to the commandment. Sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. And he goes on. I won't try at this time to get into the whole development of the relationship of law and sin, because the whole chapter seven focuses on that very, very skillfully. But the one thing I want to alert you to is verse 9, where he makes the reference that despite this very heavy treatise on the law, and by the law is the knowledge of sin, is that he was alive once without the law. And that implies that uh, he's talking about the period before he was accountable as an infant. He was alive that is because he wasn't accountable to the law. That's So it's between... Romans 7, 9, and verse 23 of Second Samuel 12, that we have the view that infants are, are uh, um, saved. So here's David, mourning while the child is ill, but as soon as he finds he's dead, he freshens up and goes about his business, and they're all startled, and he explains why. Verse 24, And David comforted Bathsheba his wife, and went in unto her, and lay with her, and she bore a son, and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. It intrigues me that David's sin is forgiven, and more than that, God blesses the offspring, Solomon. And Solomon, of course, becomes the royal heir to the throne. There are a couple of others ahead of Solomon, but they're going to knock themselves off here. And the Lord loved him. I think that's interesting. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Okay, in other words, Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Sort of a second name that Nathan gave Solomon, beloved of the Lord. Verse 26, And Joab fought against Rehoboth, the children of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rehoboth, and have taken the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city to be called after my name. And David gathered... Boy, Joab knew how to make sure David was numero uno, didn't he? Interesting. 
David gathered the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it and took their king's crown from his head, the weight of which was a talent of gold. Talent of gold, a hundred pounds. If we understand that right. Talent is, is not a coin you flip in your palm of your hand. It's a talent was a lot of weight. It was the heaviest known weight measure. An ephah was the largest uh, dry volume measure and a talent was the, it's about 95 pounds at word upon. Now, this may be a different talent. I wouldn't hold. There's a lot of arguments in these ancient measures, but the point is it was, it was a heavy, heavy trip. With a, it was a talent of gold with precious stones. It was set on David's head, and he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought forth the people who were in it and put them to labor with saws and with harrows of iron and with axes of iron and made them toil at the brick kiln. Thus did he to all the cities of the children of Ammon, so did David, and all the people returned unto Jerusalem. Very nice little verse 31, but I don't believe it. I want to see who was sleeping. No one even looked up, huh? There is a textual problem. The way you see it rendered here um, is, is one way that it um, um, can be rendered. Um, verse 31, hard toil. To do that requires changing the, the Hebrew of being pushed through to rail at. It also happens to contradict 1 Chronicles 20, verse 3, which is a parallel passage. And the parallel passage implies that this isn't what... Do you notice a lot of the words you're seeing there in italics? They're added. Most commentators believe that David imposed a cruel death on the Ammonites. Cut them with saws and with axes. And that was in accordance, accordance with the Ammonite ways. So he rendered to them the way they rendered their enemies. My turn to First Chronicles. Let's just so you don't think I'm making all this up. First Chronicles 20. The whole period of First Chronicles 18 through about 20 is a parallel passage here. We get to verse 3 of First Chronicles 20, and he brought out the people who were in it, and he cut them with saws and with picks of iron and with axes. Even so, David dealt David with all the cities of the children of Ammon, and David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And that may sound awfully cruel, but that's uh, the way the Ammonites dealt with it. First Samuel 11.2 and Amos 1.13 are a couple of cross-references you can chase down at your leisure. David didn't mess around. David was a man's man, military commander, and he handled things uh, in accordance with the the practices at the time. And uh, so uh, that, I think, covers us from Second Samuel 8 through the end of chapter 12. I think we'll leave Ammon and Absalom and all of that for next time. The, the Amnon and the uh, Absalom are going to... Uh, Make a real mess of things. And the sword does not depart from David's house, as God said it would. And it's, uh, Absalom is going to be a real problem. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Probably the most, most famous... Adultery 
in literature. David and Bathsheba. And uh, there's no condoning it. There's no uh, uh, justifying it. David didn't. And like most sin, it tends to beget sin. Adultery begets murder. Heavy stuff. Was God's grace sufficient for that? You bet. You and I are going to have the privilege, if we're in Christ, of meeting David. I'm not sure you should bring that up. Because <laughs> God won't. What does God promise you about your sins? I will remember your sins no more. So as we remember David and Bathsheba and remember his sins, let's remember the real the important part of it is how David dealt with it. Because you and I will sin. He repented, took it before the Lord. And the Lord forgave David. Now in David's case, he had to deal with it quite publicly. But God loves you. And everything in your life Everything in your life is before the Father. You have no secrets from Him. You're going to have secrets from one another. You're going to have secrets from just about everybody. You're going to even have secrets from yourself, but not from your Father. He knows it all. And He loves you so much that He anticipated all of it by the gift of His Son. He loves you so much that he has put together a destiny for you that is so fantastic that you have to be sinless to participate in it. And that contradiction he reconciled in his son by taking all your imperfections and all your shortcomings and all your rebellions and all that which is in you that would prevent you from being with the Father. He's taken it all and put that on Jesus Christ. Not just those sins up until today. All of them. How comforting it is to remember that. Because you're going to go through what, what uh, Hal Lindsey likes to call the guilt trip. Tough thing for a Christian. Because you get into all this, then you stumble really badly. Something really follows up. And you will go into that valley of despair. You'll forget all the things you've learned. That Jesus is sufficient. No matter what you've done. No matter what your situation. Jesus has. He, he's not surprised. You may be surprised. He isn't. Because he knows you for what you are. And what I am. And he loves us that much. That he went to the cross. He asked the father. If there's any other way that we can take care of this. Let's take it. He asked him three times. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, let not my will but thine be done. So there's only one way to deal with these problems. There aren't alternative methods. This isn't the best of seven. It's the only way. Or God didn't answer his prayer. The only remedy for your predicament and mine was the cross. Let's bow our hearts. Father, once again, we're overwhelmed as we come to the foot of the cross. Once again, Father, as we read of your servant David and as we recognize his stumbling and his sin and his, his error, Father, we praise you for his example. We thank you, Father, for the revelation that he was 
one after your own heart, that he, that he repented. We thank you, Father, for his example in that you have washed away his sin. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you have provided a remedy, an anticipation, a remedy of our sin. Father, we would just ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would increase in us an understanding of the cross, that you would increase in us a hunger for your word, that we might more fully appreciate the extremes that you've gone to, that we might have life, that we might have fellowship with you unencumbered by our sin as it is washed away in his shed blood. Father, we would just ask for your Holy Spirit to help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of you. As we go forward, Father, we pray that you would just increase in us an appetite for your word, that we might partake of it daily, and that in all these things, we might not only grow in grace and the knowledge of thee, but that we might be more pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer.